Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They've photographed everything from the person on the street to celebrities, presidents and more. We talk with John Shishmanian and Sean Elliott, formerly of the Norwich Bulletin and The Day, about their photographic careers. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The world of the photojournalist is shrinking as advances in technology and smaller operating budgets at our remaining local and national newspapers also shrink. But we still love looking at those moments in time captured by press photographers that in many instances go on to become iconic images in the modern history of our world. I caught up recently with two of Eastern Connecticut's best photographers and photojournalists who between them have almost 80 years of combined experience and have brought us amazing images that have graced the pages of our local newspapers. John Shishmanian recently retired after 46 years with the Norwich Bulletin and Sean Elliott left the day newspaper after 30 years with them. They talk about their careers, the changes from film to digital photography and what the future holds for an industry that is constantly reinventing itself in the modern era. Do you both welcome? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn to John first. You've retired 43 years of being a photojournalist and a photographer at the Bulletin. How did you get started, John? Well, back in 1979, when it was the Norwich Bulletin, not the Bulletin, I had been trying to get a job there for months and they didn't have an opening. And I would, you know, from time to time call and ask and they said, well, we'd like to hire you, but we can't, we don't have an opening. So I had heard that the one of the photographers, Jeff Evans, who sadly recently passed away uh, and will be missed by all of us, was on vacation for two weeks in Europe. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity. And I called and said, I could come in and help out for those two weeks if you'd like. And they said, yeah, great, come on in. And I did. And I enjoyed it. I immediately discovered that it was a job I wanted to have. Within a week or more, I had fallen in love with the job. And when that two weeks had passed, and I was done, <laughs> I just decided to show up on Monday morning and see what would happen because I knew it was very busy there. There was always a lot to do. Reporters had to use broken down cameras to take photos for their assignments and they always wanted a photographer. I knew by then they liked what I was doing and I just decided to show up and I did and Jeff Evans saw me and because I had met him quite a few times on the sidelines of football games where I was shooting to see whether I could have a portfolio to show him. And he said, oh, shush, you're here. Here, we got Cedar Simons, so go ahead. <laughs> and I just stayed. I, I just kept coming in for months until I finally officially applied for the job. I was privately owned. It wasn't a Gannett paper back then. It was owned by the Noise and the Oat family. And you know, it was different times back then, and they could do that. Four or five months or so, I applied for the job, and I was... Yeah, I think I wanted to get insurance. 
<laughs> so that's how I got the job. And Sean, the day, the rival paper to yes. what was formerly the Norwich Bulletin, now the Bulletin, 30 years, as we said, as their top photographer and photojournalist. Talk to us about how you got into the industry. Sure. Boy, you know, it's funny. Uh, I I love John's story. I, I, I wish I had one that good. You know, I got bitten by the photojournalism bug in high school. I had a photography teacher who showed us documentaries on some famous photojournalists, Dorothea Lang, Margaret Bork White being the ones that really stand out. And I got really interested up till then. Photography had just been sort of a hobby and I got really interested. So I showed up the next, my junior year in high school to be a photographer on the yearbook and the school newspaper. And the advisor for the school newspaper had said, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're really enthused. This is great. Happy to have you along. Uh, the Oregon Scholastic Press Association's annual student conferences is next week right here in Eugene. This is where I grew up, Eugene, Oregon. And she said, but the, the student, the, the Shadow of Pro program is booked. All the, ki- all the slots are filled. But if you come on down after on down. we have a break in your classes, if nobody showed up for a spot, I'll put you in. And so I ducked out of class at one point and I head over to the University of Oregon and she's got her little table set up. She said, you're in luck. One of the students from some town didn't show up. So you can go out and shadow a pro. And so she sent me out for you know, the first half of the day with another high school student photographer, with a photographer from the Eugene Register Guard, which to photojournalists is a, is a very famous paper. It had recently brought in a, a famous photojournalist, Brian Lanker, as the photo editor. They did really great work. They'd been on the cutting edge of, of color photography. So the paper was just beautiful. And I, I already really liked looking at the paper. And so I got to spend a morning following this photographer, Paul Carter, around. And just watching how he did his job, how, how he worked angles and interacted with people. And then we went back to the office and he processed some film. And I had that, I call it a light, that light bulb epiphany. And the little light goes on over your head. And I said, oh my goodness, this is what I want to do. Photography is great, but photojournalism is, is it. And I went back to my journalism advisor and I said, Sue, this is it. This, I've found my career calling and I threw myself into it, heart and soul, the yearbook, the newspaper in high school, pursued photojournalism out of high school and college, first in community college and then at Boston University. I came out of BU looking for jobs, had a couple of internships. I was down at the Connecticut Post in Bridgeport on an internship when the day posted a, a job on the National Press Photographers Association's job bank. They were looking for a digital imaging technician. You know, I was looking primarily in New England for jobs. I, I had a relationship I was trying to maintain. So I thought this is a chance to get in at a newspaper. Staff jobs were already getting pretty tight by the early 90s. And so I, I interviewed there and the photo editor was like, you know, you're great. I like you. You got a real enthusiasm. You, you understand the technology, which is what we need somebody who can come in here and do. And I said, yeah. And what I really want to be is a, is a photographer. I want to be a staff photojournalist said, well, you know, it's not what this job is, but if something happens, some, an opening comes along, you know, and you've, you know, maybe done some work while you're here, you might prove yourself. And sure enough, I don't know, six, eight months into the job of working four to midnight, Tuesday through Saturday, one of the photographers retired. I applied. I'd already, I'd been chasing spot news, going to some sporting events on my own time. Sports department loved, you know, loved that I was bringing them extra stuff. The news Loved that I would chase spot news when the other staff photographers were scattered to the winds. And so through a fairly lengthy process where I had to beat out a couple other people, one of whom came for an interview and it snowed and said, I'm not moving to New England after all. And that's how I got Mother Nature helped me out, became a staff photographer. About a decade later, we had some retirements. Uh, The company offered some buyouts and I became the chief photographer. And then another decade later, I became the director of photography. 
Amazing stories, both of you. I think you're playing down there, Sean, you know, your sort of like entry and your, you know, how you got into the career. I thought that was a fascinating story. And so thank you for sharing that. Technology, of course, has changed dramatically since both of you got into the business. I mean, talk to us, John, a little bit about that, because you both would have been trained to use film which, of course, you mention to most people these days and they'll just look at you blankly because everything is now sort of like digital or on people's phones. So, John, talk to us a little bit about the technology back then and, and also then how ultimately you had to move with the technology. Has that changed? It really, really has changed so much. And for the better, as far as I'm concerned, when I started in 79, everything was black and white, almost all papers. It's very little color out. I think the color didn't really start in our paper till around 1985, but we were developing in a dark room, ASA 400 black and white film, and that's all we did. And we would have to develop it, we'd have to dry it, and then put it in a larger, and then we'd have to take under red light, uh, special red light, we would have to make a print, and then we would have to, you know, we'd have to stabilize it and fix it and wash it. The process always took at least 10 to 15 minutes to get something out. And that was fine. We were used to, that's what we were used to. And then when papers started to use color, we got on board, as I said, in the mid 80s. Jeff Evans was the one that did most of the research on it. And we bought this $200,000 Zenith color processor. It was just a lot of money spent to do color. And it was very complicated. And we started to shoot in slide film instead, uh, Kodachrome. And of course, then you really told you had to be perfect. Couldn't correct it. It was darker light, you're in trouble. We got used to doing that. And then more and more, we, we switched over just to color. And, and then we went to color print film. And that lasted for quite a while until, can't remember when we switched over to digital, early 2000s. I'm not even sure. Uh, maybe Sean will re- remember when digital came in. And yeah, I think, I think our papers such- switched over around the same time. So or very yeah. early, around, around 2000, 2001. I, I couldn't believe what a godsend it was because, you know, you could look and you could see whether someone had blinked. You could see whether the exposure was right. Everything was great. You could take many more photos because I used to get in trouble because I would take too many photos and film was expensive. I was, I'd shoot eight to 10 rolls of film a day. And I was asked, can you, <laughs> this is funny, can you think about the photo before you take it so you don't use as much film? I said, no, <laughs> you have to take the photos. And I, I didn't care. I just kept shooting as much as I wanted to. And they just accepted it after a while. And But now with digital, I would average 700 to 1,200 photos a day and wear out cameras. But, you know, it was great to have that kind of a selection. Absolutely. I read in an article, actually, John, that uh, that you wrote, uh, you know, when you obviously retired, you said that you've estimated you've taken something like over 8 million photographs over the years, and obviously had thousands of them published. I mean, that's incredible. It's a lot of photos. And uh, I have a very strong index finger from pressing that shutter button so many times, and a lot of worn out camera bodies. And Sean, just quickly, because I want to get onto other stuff as well. But, you know, the technology thing as well. Again, you grew up with film. You had to transition across to to digital. John said he likes it. And we all know that there are those those advantages to using it because there's the the immediacy of it. How did you react to it at first when it was like, yep, this is what we're going to do. So you need to learn it, sunshine. You know, I was fully on board really day one. I got my first experience was digital before the paper even went. There was the Eddie Adams workshop, which is a, a prestigious photojournalism workshop for, for young 
young photojournalists early in their career. And I got to be on the very first digital team. And so I got to use this brand new camera called the News Camera 2000, which was a joint effort between the Associated Press and Nikon to create the basically the first viable digital camera for field work. And so a couple of years later, when the day first bought that camera, I was the one who used it the most. We used it mostly only then for deadline sports and, and you know, breaking news late at night when it was really imperative to, to get stuff back to the paper. But that camera was technologically, a, you know, a, a nightmare in a lot of ways. It was very low resolution. Your first iPhone had a higher resolution sensor than that camera had back in 1996. 1997. It was not really great to use. And even for the next several years, well into the 2000s, the early digital cameras had shortcomings from an aesthetic standpoint. The, the color rendition was not great. The resolution still wasn't great. So you really couldn't, you couldn't blow images up. If you shot your picture, you had to be up close to your subject because you couldn't zoom in very much uh, after, after the fact. So it's really only been mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, when the, gen when the sensors and the cameras got to a point, they could capture the resolution, they could capture the, the kind of detail that made it better than film from the aesthetic standpoint. The convenience was absolutely 100% there from day one, the ability to go to a, a UConn basketball game and not have to leave it half to run back to the office to process film to make deadline for the paper was a godsend. It, it made a world of difference. But it's only now that Digital has really surpassed film as far as the quality this last decade or so, but it's it's certainly way past it now. Let's talk about the photographs because that's what you're both, of course, known for, creating stunning images that have graced the front pages of the newspapers and I'm sure other publications as well. John, it's obviously difficult to ask you to pinpoint, I'm sure, you know, because we just said you've taken over 8 million photographs and the same with Sean. I'm sure he's taken an equal amount of photographs, but you've shot all types of things from buildings to people to politicians. I mean, in a nutshell, what would you say, who was like maybe your, your best celebrity? Because I know you shot quite a few celebrities. <laughs> oh, my God. So many celebrities, uh, sports and political, but uh, celebrities, which, of course, we shot a lot at the two casinos. That was just kind of you would stand in one spot and you were kind of forced to shoot for two or three songs. And that was it. I think what I really enjoyed more than celebrities is shooting presidents over the years, uh, many of them at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy during their commencement. But in other, other places, too, during campaigns, the Ronald Reagan, both President Bush's. One funny story is the first President Bush uh, was vi visiting a submarine down in New London, and the, all the New York press was there. And when you're inside this, the submarine, you, really, there's no place to go. It was very crowded, and you have to go through the hatchways. And I somehow got in there ahead of everybody else, and I was right right in front of the president and I just kept shooting while he was going through the hatchways. The New York people were yelling at me, get out of there, we need photos. <laughs> but I just kept shooting and I finally gave way, but it was kind of neat to be able to get the photos and I, I did get some that I enjoyed. And one other quick one is President Ford. And that was in my story. He was former President Ford at the Coast Guard Academy and he was a very athletic man, but known to be a little clumsy. And yet he wasn't because I think he stumbled coming off a plane once and people made fun of him because of that. But he was a good athlete. During the photo shoot at the Coast Guard Academy, it was just two men on a stage talking and pretty boring. And he kept pulling up his socks because it kept falling down. And I shot it thinking, well, that's funny. 
And then the editors liked it and we ran the photo. The next day I found out from the um, the PR person at the Coast Guard Academy that the president loved the photo. He was still there and he was carrying it around in his pocket, showing it to people. So that was one of my favorite moments. The former president was carrying my, my photo in his pocket. That's incredible. And, and Sean, what about you? Again, so many memories, so many photographs. I know it's a difficult one to select to round out in just a couple of minutes, but thoughts on yours? Boy, yeah, it's, uh, you know, just, I mean, I, I certainly haven't taken as many as John since he's got a few years on me duration of career, but probably proportionally year for year, it's not different. I think probably the, maybe the thing that stands out for me is almost all of the 30 years I spent covering the UConn women's basketball team. And so I was there for seven of their national titles, including the the first one in 95, when they had that great undefeated season and, and, you know, arguably because of the proximity to the New York media market sort of woke the world to the existence of, of high-level women's basketball. It's been that. I've been there for all of those, so many of those titles and seen so many of those great teams play. And it's it's carried over to, you know, covering the WNBA and, and just a, a love I really do have for uh, an aspect of sports storytelling that I really enjoy. So that's, that really stands out. Let me put this question to both of you as well. You worked, obviously, for rival newspapers. It sounds like you're friends or you've uh, no doubt built a friendship over the years. Was there a rivalry between the two of you when you were on the same story? It was always fun to look at the photos from the same assignments that uh, Sean and I might be at and see what he got, a different angle or, yeah. or whatever. And his photos are always outstanding to look at. And sometimes I'd be a little jealous because, oh, man, I, I missed that. I didn't get the, oh, that's, the best that, photo. That goes, that goes and, both ways. That's always how it's been. Yeah, it's just, it's just nice. It, it, was, it was good. We got along well with the... Uh, with all of the, uh, the, the photographers at, at the day, we chat together and it was just always fun to see a familiar face. And it was a friendly rivalry. That's, yeah, that's all I, can say I, I, I agree. I, I think definitely a friendly rivalry would be the way to put it. I mean, I think if you, you ask the upper executives at newspapers, it might not have been so friendly, but those of us down in the trenches always managed to find a way to be uh, at least congenial, you know, always looking at keeping an eye out, making sure that I'm not missing the angle that John's going for. And you know, looking at the paper the next day to see what he found and what I found, what his editor liked, what my editor liked. But that's, you know, honestly, that's, I think, one of the saddest things about the, the business today is that the numbers of photojournalists that are out there has dwindled so much. The resources of papers, you know, the rivalry might exist on the business end today, but it doesn't. The odds that I would see John in assignment, you know, over the last year or two were slim. You know, it's when I did see him, it's like, John, so good to see you. I'm glad you haven't retired yet. Right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, as you know, I don't see my colleagues from the Hartford Current anymore because there's no photographers left there. The, you know, the other small newspapers that just don't have so many photographers. So we don't get, we don't get that camaraderie. We don't get to, when we're not busy, you know, capturing the action to, to talk to each other, see how our lives are going complain about our broken down equipment uh, so that's you know that's the thing a friendly rivalry like that really makes life better it's a, a shame we don't have as much of it anymore let me put this final question to both of you you've said that the technology has obviously helped and improved things but also technology can have an adverse effect as well and you've just said it sean that you know photojournalists now aren't as prolific as they once were because of the way that newspapers sadly and other media sort of are financing themselves and having to conduct their business do you think in a way that because of all of this we're going to see maybe less better photographs not necessarily quality but the fact is that 
people like myself, a journalist, I'm not trained in photography yet. I am asked to take photographs. I do my very best to take some photographs, but you know, I don't have that photographer's eye. So do you think that as we step forward that we might start to see less of those stunning images? Well, I think it's already started, especially in, in my own former paper. We had five photographers at one point, then we went down to four and about 10 or 12 years ago, we went down to two. And then maybe two years ago, with they, they laid off again, it was down just to me. And then since it's just me, when we would have assignments, I couldn't be everywhere, obviously. And the reporters would start taking photos with their phones. And they're not trained to take photos, and they would use them for major stories. And I would look, I would be kind of sad to see they did the best that they could. But and now that I'm gone, there's nobody there. And the freelance budget guess, is gone or is right now. And the reporters are shooting everything and the newspaper just doesn't look right. I just, it's, it's sad for me to see how things have changed and how photojournalism yeah. has, you know, kind of dying out. Photography has been democratized, right? The, the iPhone is putting a can't put a camera in everybody's hand. There is something to be said for both the combination, I think, of, a, of an artistic talent that goes with it. But also, I think the journalistic training, you know, a, a photojournalist is someone who works to, to couple the story with photographs. And even if even if a photojournalist doesn't write, and John and I are both photojournalists to do a fair, done a fair amount of writing, but even if a photojournalist doesn't write, it's the the mindset around telling a story through photographs that has to be coupled with that technical skill as well as a little bit of that artistic vision to really create, like you said, these these uh, eye grabbing images, the ones that really sing on a front page. And and we've seen a point now where everybody thinks they're a photographer because they've got a camera. <laughs> And bean counters, the executives see a way to, to save money by getting rid of these professional photojournalists and, and getting by. And, and I think it, it doesn't matter which paper you look at, with the exception maybe of, you know, the big ones, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Well, those papers, they, they've got huge photo staffs and they're turning out great photographs and they make sure they focus on that. But the smaller papers, even the medium-sized papers are more and more relying on the, the smartphone camera in the hand of a reporter who is focused on the aspects of their reporting and not able to focus on the photographs in the same way. It's, it is a shame. There was a, a glory, a glory days to photojournalism that are definitely behind us. We both got out just in time, Sean. No. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, kicking and screaming to some degree, but absolutely. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We only just scratched the surface onto illustrious careers. As I say, John, 43 years, Sean, 30 years. You have been the standard bearers and you have a legacy which uh, will never be overtaken, certainly not in this modern age. And uh, we're very grateful to have had both of you as our competing photographers, as it were, for the competing newspapers. John, enjoy your retirement and whatever you get up to. Sean, I know that you've moved on to other things. We wish you success as your career continues to, excuse the pun, develop in different directions. But thank you both for joining us on Connecticut East this week. Thank you very thank much. You so much, Brian. Fun. John, take care. Take care, Sean. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. 
Green Valley Tree LLC is proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week. Contact Green Valley Tree LLC for all your tree removal and plant health care needs and more. Find us at GreenValleyTreeWorks.com or call 860-234-4041. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Governor Lamont delivered his fiscal year 2024-2025 biennial budget to a joint session of the General Assembly on Wednesday the 8th of February. The governor said the state had enjoyed strong economic and population growth for the first time in over a generation and said he wants to build on that momentum. My budget continues to grow the economy through a middle-class tax cut and investments in our young families, education, workforce training, workforce housing and helping families eliminate medical debt. The governor also revealed details of his tax cuts for working and middle-class families in the state, cutting personal income tax for the first time in nearly 30 years. We currently tax families for 3% of their first $20,000 in income and 5% of their income up to $100,000. And my proposal will cut the current 5% rate by 10% and the 3% rate by one-third. I want a sustainable tax cut that we can support in good times in not-so-good times. The governor's budget also proposed providing employers with a corporate tax credit of 25% of the cost of childcare cost subsidies they provide their employees, increased teacher recruitment, affordable housing, better transport infrastructure, and eliminating medical debt for tens of thousands of state residents. As the war in Ukraine heads towards its first anniversary, the Centre for Arctic Study and Policy, based at the Coast Guard Academy in New London, says research cooperation and diplomacy in the Arctic region is being tested as well by the conflict. Anthony Russell is the executive director of the centre, also known as CASP, and says the US Coast Guard's mission and presence in the Arctic now and moving forward is likely to increase. The Arctic Council and the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, which are two of the main forums through which we pursue kind of a peaceful and prosperous Arctic, are a little bit frozen because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. For the first time, those bodies, because Russia is one of the eight Arctic nations, have been limited in their ability to kind of pursue their research and policy development agendas in a consensus fashion. Russell says the conflict and the fact Russia is chair of the Arctic Council until the end of 2023 has heightened tensions and security concerns with the other Arctic nations like the USA. So we have to figure out how we can kind of continue to build the partnerships, to do the exercises, to pursue smart regulations, to stay ahead of of the changes, to manage those changes so that they're not harmful when we don't necessarily have all the players at the table to do that. Also, tensions in the region have increased over the years with other nations like China and its close relationship with Russia looking to stake their claim on the Arctic and the rare minerals, oil and natural gas buried beneath the ice there. And the lives of the last commercial trap fishing family in southern New England can be seen at a new photo exhibition at the Mystic Seaport Museum. Fish and Forest Through the Lens of a Commercial Fisher Mom is an exhibition by third-generation fisherwoman Corey Wheeler-Forest. Forrest says it's an attempt to show the public her family's business and how they help one another like her brother Luke. He is definitely a big part in our work. He runs his own boat and when he can he helps my father and I run our, our business too but he's not always every day but when he is there it's always sort of a blessing and a huge help because we're already shorthanded he's experienced he's at domain maritime academy he's been fishing his whole life 
Forrest has been fishing for over 25 years since she was 19 years old and still fishes on a daily basis with her father, who will be 76 years old this year, and her daughter, and says with fewer people wanting to become fishermen, the future is uncertain. We'll just keep going as long as we can. I know my dad wants to see that for his kids and possibly grandkids. I think that goes with the territory of fishing, not just our particular fishery. The future is really uncertain, whether it's, you know, a pandemic or falling fish prices, regulations. I think that fishermen to the core always remain optimistic and hopeful. Forrest says she hopes the exhibition, which runs until the summer, will give people some insight into the fishing world. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 